It's been 56 days in lockdown. It's been long. It's been tiring. It's been tedious. Is our parish slowly dying? No siree, danky doodle dee. There's been all sorts of things happening. This is the Parish Update segment. If you're like me and have completely forgotten that the Parish Newsletter exists online, then boy, are you going to love this segment. I've put in the hours so you don't have to. I've got news about the parish. I've got parish news. I've got news about events that have occurred in the parish. And most importantly, I've got parish news. Right off the bat, we have a new logo. Now, I am trying to rack my brain for the old logo. We may have had one. We may not have had one. But the news isn't about the old logo. It's about the new one. Whether we had one or not is completely irrelevant. Now, our new logo, it was designed by one of our lovely parishioners, Chloe. It incorporates the cross as well as the E and C, which of course stands for European Commission. <laughs> that was uh, that was just a little joke there. The E and C, of course, stands for Epping and Carlingford. You'll be seeing this logo, it seems, a lot more often as it will be placed upon the new parish buildings over at Epping. We may have some new buildings coming to Epping, but just recently a statue of Our Lady of Grace has been placed within the newly refurbished contemplative garden outside St. Gerard's Church. You can see the blessing of the statue online on our parish's Facebook page, and might I say, the statue looks very nice. Very nice indeed. I know some of you might be missing the sense of community that the parish provides. So let me run through all the online events happening throughout the coming weeks. Daily Masses are live-streamed from our parish's Facebook page. They can also be accessed on that page at a later time for your convenience. Now, the Masses start at 9.30am Monday through Friday with a 6pm vigil on Saturday evening. These vigil Masses can also be accessed on our parish's YouTube channel on the Sunday morning. Every evening at 6pm, there's a short 15-minute evening prayer, a nice way to connect with one another and give thanks to God for another day. Once a fortnight, on Tuesday evenings from 7 to 8.30, the young adults group Emmaus meet up over Zoom for prayer and an overall fun time. Then heading over to Wednesdays at 9.10am, Ian leads the rosary prior to the live-streamed Mass. On Thursday evening, Father Bogdan runs the Men of St. Joseph, which is a nice little gathering of men, young and old, to discuss their faith. On Friday evenings, Kena, the youth group for early high schoolers, is run from 7.30 to 9pm. I have to admit, I attended a couple of weeks back. Lots of fun. <laughs> Lots of fun indeed. Then on Sunday morning at 10am, we have Kids Word. Time for children and their parents to come together online to sing, pray, listen, and watch all things concerning that Sunday's gospel. Then finally, on the Sunday evening, Father Jim leads a family-friendly, interactive liturgy of the word starting at 5 p.m. Following this at 7 p.m. is, of course, the world-famous Antioch meeting, where many young people of the parish gather to talk about faith, wish people happy birthday, look at pets, 
pray, and of course debate whether the fame associated with the 1994 film Forrest Gump is truly deserved. Well, there you go, folks. With an event happening every day online, I think it's safe to say that our parish is thriving still in lockdown. Now, all the details concerning the events I've listed and more can be located on the parish website. My name's Jack, and this has been your Fortnite's Parish Update. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Power Parables, where you and I step closer to God, one parable at a time. So today we'll be taking a look at a parable called The Wheat and the Weeds. This one is quite an interesting parable because it comes with its own explanation. So there isn't really too much need for us to do that initial reflection. But I still think even with the explanation, there's a lot for us both to unpack. So if you'd like to read along, it's Matthew 13 verses 24 to 30. And with Jesus's explanation, it's the extra verses from verse 36 to 43. So let's read it together. The parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burnt. Then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burnt in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. 
So, like I said, this one is quite an interesting parable. One, because it does come with its own explanation. And secondly, because I really do feel that there is an important message in this that we can always keep in mind when things get tough. I guess there must have been a time where you and I felt that something has been unfair. Or you might think, gosh, you know, why is it that, you know, this person who has done something wrong is still rewarded? Where is the sense of justice in the world? How could God let this happen? But I think what this parable is trying to convey to us is even if in the moment, if you feel like the world is unfair and God is not on your side, you need to remember that God indeed has a plan that he is working out over time. And slowly but steadily, it will be resolved and good will triumph over evil in the end. And this extends to anything really, whether it be tragedies or accidents or even in our day-to-day lives where we may see injustice or violence. You know, it's very easy to think, where is God and why doesn't he do anything? And I think in this case, the disciples also had similar questions. They may have been asking, like, why are the Romans still in power and why is evil still at work? But like I said, this parable really teaches us that God does have a plan for us and this world and he is working to accomplish it. However, of course, it is unfolding over time and that means there's some waiting for us to do, which may be difficult at times. But I feel as long as you you know, keep hope and have a regular relationship with God, whether it be through reading the Bible or daily prayers, maybe in that day-to-day life, you'd be able to hang on and see that there is at least some good in the world and that slowly but steadily, injustice will be resolved. So what did you guys think of this parable? Um, Please let me know. And thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Last few weeks have obviously been quite challenging. Talking to many people I know over the past couple of weeks have shown all the very different places we're at. Some of our more introverts are actually quite enjoying it, but many of people are becoming numb to it all. It's easy to feel numb, like it's never ending, that it's insurmountable, that life is going to go on like this forever. Big changes in our lives happen all the time, and they often happen quite gradually without us noticing it. The 2019-2020 bushfires were some of the the worst ever. They were unprecedented. The skies looked orange and almost hellish for months. It felt like that was all it was ever going to be. We got used to it. We got numb to it. We carried on. And then one day, it stopped. More accurately, over several weeks, it got worse and worse and worse. Then over several months, it slowly got better and better until it was just gone. This wasn't the first time Sydney looked like this, this orange hellscape. I remember waking up one morning in 2009 before going to school, and the world was covered in a red layer of dust, a really thick layer of dust. Only a third of my class even bothered to show up. A lot of people were worried about health reasons, that asthma or weak immune system. Most were just quite scared. I remember my shirts being stained with red, hair with red specks throughout it, and the anxiousness of of everyone at school that day. But again, the sky slowly, slowly cleared up, 
the streets were swept, and all the white shirts bleached, and the apocalypse was forgotten about. When talking about suffering, the obvious story comes to mind is that of the Book of Job. So for those of you who don't know, in the Book of Job, there's this man, Job, believe it or not, he's a wealthy man, he lives in a land called Uz with his large family and flocks, he's a good man, he's a righteous man, he's blameless and upright, he is always careful to avoid evil. But, through no real fault of his home, God tests him and takes it all away, and I mean all of it. In the space of one day, he receives four messages. That his livestock, that his servants, that his children, his lands, everything is gone in a day. Everything. He tears his clothes off and shaves his head in the morning. But he still believes and prays for God. He then loses his health. He loses, he becomes sick and covered with these blisters and sores. Everything is taken away. Even when he's lying destitute and sick in the streets, even his friends, the people he trusts the most, essentially blame him for it. His wife even tells him to curse God and die. But he doesn't. He continues to have faith, even though life can be cruel and unjust sometimes. Eventually, his health returns and his livelihood and good times come again. And good things can come from tragedy. Darkness is what makes lights shine brighter. You might remember, during the bushfires, Celeste Barber's fundraiser. A comedian raising $51 million to help battle bushfires. We saw the power of people working together. The spirit of Anzacs. Looking after your mate was shown to be alive and well. Well, wouldn't it be better if there just any, weren't any bushfires to begin with? Well, yeah, the obvious answer is yes. But the secondary answer is that it's unavoidable. Tragedy comes, tragedy goes. The good things will come and go, regardless of what we have to do. And sometimes we don't know why. Job never finds out why his life got so bad. He never had any real insay in this injustice. All he can do was continue to have faith and move forward, or to curse God and die. Through his faith, and through his continual belief, even when belief seemed almost ridiculous, he ended up coming, gaining everything. He gained the favour of God. He got his life back. He got his wealth back. He got everything twice as much. Job got the better path. I don't know why life throws difficulties our way. I'm not sure anybody does. But I do know that we can grow immensely from it. There was this author, Marcel Proust. Now, I got this from a movie. I haven't personally read him. But when it gets down to an end of his life, he looks back and he decides that all of the years he suffered, those were the best years of his life because that's what made him who he was. We will look back fondly on the good times, but we will also look back on these bad times, and eventually we might even become grateful for them, for helping us to become the people we are today. No matter how bad our life has got, we can look to Job as an example. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how dismal our life seems to be, so long as we continue to have faith in God, eventually, in this life or the next, we will have our rewards. Every day, all day, sitting at my desk or in bed has got me thinking, or rather procrastinating, because it seems as though there's so much more time on my hands. And during this time, I've gone through quite a few movies and TV shows, and I had this realisation. I don't know if many of you also noticed this, 
but there's one clear distinction between characters in movies and TV shows versus the people we see in our everyday lives. It's being able to determine whether they're good or bad. Take Darth Vader, or the Joker, or all of the evil witches and stepmothers in those Disney movies. Ignoring plot twists at the end of the movie, it's just so clear to see, so obvious that they're the bad guy, compared to the protagonist of their stories. And then think back to that really annoying teacher you had in school, or that friend that said something mean to you in the past. We've all interacted with these people in our lives who we either don't get along with, or who have hurt us. And we don't see them as villains in our lives. For me at least, I don't find it easy to categorise a real person as good or bad. I mean, looking back in history, there are certain individuals that I think most of us would agree were pretty bad, and some that just seemed exceptionally good. And maybe that's because of how famous they were. All of these stories told about them. They became a character in themselves. They seemed less like the rest of us, because the stories only told of their exceptional courage or horrifying tyranny, and none of the mundane days or decisions in between. And so, I decided to explore this idea of morality linked to characters a bit more. How do we be good and know if someone else is good? Aristotle's Virtue Ethics proposes that morality should be determined by an individual's character rather than whether they follow a set of rules. Our world is complex and sometimes getting the Ten Commandments and holding it up to someone and ticking it off just doesn't work. She hasn't murdered anyone, hasn't robbed any banks, hasn't technically lied, but she just doesn't fit the mould of that perfect virtuous protagonist. And for those simplistic Disney villains, it's so much easier to use that checklist to see if they're following the rules. But as the film industry starts creating more multi-dimensional characters who have these deep backstories and traumatic pasts that help us understand why they're doing the things that they do, we see judging morality becomes so much more like real life. Everything has a function. And it's good if it fulfills its function, and bad if it doesn't. A toaster that doesn't toast is a bad toaster. Now us as humans, we should try to preserve life, continue our species, educate the generations after us, and educate them to preserve life too. Get along with other people in our lives, gain knowledge, and find meaning. This is natural law theory, explained by Thomas Aquinas. But Aristotle believed that all of these functions were already built into us, kind of like instincts. It makes being good sound so simple and easy, like in the stories. He says, having virtue just means doing the right thing at the right time, in the right way, in the right amount, towards the right people. Easy, right? <laughs> I took this to mean, to be perfect, you just gotta be perfect. And honestly, this made me feel even more lost and confused. But philosopher Socrates helps us understand this a bit more. He explains that virtue is just about gaining knowledge. Socrates wanted us to turn our gaze inward, to analyse our true nature and the values which guide our life. He talked about good and bad in an interesting way. A lot of people would say wealth, status, pleasure and social acceptance are good, and the opposite, poverty, death, pain and social rejection are the ultimate evil. And this is because as humans we associate what we think will bring us happiness with goodness, and so we chase those good things in order to achieve happiness. But if we have the wrong idea of what good is, then we will continue chasing things that don't make us happy for our entire lives. Socrates maintains the idea that one supreme good is virtue. A virtuous person being one who had the moral qualities of courage, justice, prudence and temperance. 
The equation for life is that knowledge equals virtue equals happiness. And when we arrive at knowledge of virtue, that's when we can lead a good life and be happy. And the reason for all the evil humans bring into the world is simply ignorance. All the greed, jealousy, manipulation. It's just a lack of understanding where true happiness can be found. A lack of understanding that happiness comes from growth within and not power or status. So how do we become more virtuous? Aristotle described each characteristic or trait on a scale. For every attribute, you can have either a deficiency of it or an excess, and virtue is like the golden mean, somewhere on that scale, in between the extremes of deficiency and excess. Take courage, for example. The two extremes would be recklessness and cowardice. Say you're at a beach and you see a man stuck in a rip, almost drowning. If you have no courage, you would probably be too scared of getting stuck in the rip or putting yourself in some kind of similar danger to save the man. And so maybe you just do nothing. On the other extreme, you think about how you've always had this desire to become a real life superhero. And so without a second thought, you run straight for the water to go save the man. Once you're in, you realize this man is about twice your size and there's no way you would be able to pull him back to safety, even if you were a great swimmer on your own. And you realize what you just did was an excess of courage. It was reckless. As my mom always says, too much of anything is good for nothing. The courageous choice would have been to run and call the lifeguard and assist by listening to the lifeguard's advice. A courageous person will assess the situation. They'll know their own abilities and they'll take action that is right in the particular situation. Courage does not have to be about endangering yourself. Have a think yourself about how this golden mean applies to qualities like honesty and generosity. So how do we find this golden mean when every situation is different? Aristotle said, character is developed through habituation. If you do a virtuous thing over and over again, eventually it will become part of your character. And the way we can start building these good habits in the first place is by finding someone to emulate. Everyone has different people that they look up to, who they want to be like in the future because they admire the way they live their lives. Sometimes these role models are from history. Sometimes they're family members or mentors or teachers. Sometimes there are multiple people we look up to. But for Christians, the main person we admire is Jesus, most simply from the good he did in his life. The way he was kind to the poor, sick and homeless, people on the edge of society, people who were completely different from him. The way he made so many sacrifices of his own wants and needs to make other people's lives better. And for me, that's the single core of my faith. The central reason I call myself Christian is because I want to follow Christ and become virtuous like him. I think based on our values, we all get to choose who we look up to, who inspires us, and who we want to emulate. Our view of what morality is begins with our decision of who we want to follow. I think it's a safe assumption that during our lives in lockdown, movies have obtained a higher priority than they once did. Many of us have revisited old classics as well as viewed new and exciting films. Throughout this process, I imagine many of you have developed a greater appreciation for actors and actresses from Henry Fonda to Judy Garland. As I'm sure most of you are aware, the Oscars is an award ceremony that recognises these actors and actresses and other talented people in the filmmaking industry. Welcome, listener. 
to Jack's big fact. My name's Jack, I've got a fact, and it's a doozy. Today, we'll be talking about the Oscars, more specifically, the Oscar statuettes. Those wee little gold guys. For you today, I've got a little entree fact before the main course. It turns out that during World War II, the Oscar statuettes were simply painted plaster. There was a metal shortage due to all the machinery and weaponry being made for the war effort, so there wasn't any metal available for the statuettes. So instead of the usual 24-carat gold-covered bronze, the statuettes were bits of painted plaster. Now, I may have turned some heads when I mentioned what the typical Oscars are made of. 24-carat gold-covered bronze. You might be thinking, geez, Jack, those fellas must sell for a fortune due to their gold and historical and cultural value. Well, listener, welcome to the main course. It turns out that Oscar statuettes can come in at a whopping price of $1. You heard me right. An Oscar is worth $1. There was a 2015 court ruling that mandates before any resale of a statuette, it must first be offered to the Academy for $1. Fortunately for many, they were able to make quite a profit prior to the court ruling. For example, in 1999, the 1939 Best Picture Oscar for Gone with the Wind was sold to Michael Jackson for a whopping $2 million. But today it would sell for just $1. Well, there you go, listener. Even with a production cost of $550, those small gold Oscars are just glorified paperweights. Now, I might be getting old, but these days, there's nothing I like better than to unwind in the evening with a crossword and a cup of chamomile tea. In fact, as I'm talking now, I'm doing just that. But damn, these clues are cryptic. And at the risk of sounding too much like Dora the Explorer, I think I'm going to need your help. This coming week, we have the feast days of two very important saints. So I thought I'd read a bit more into their lives, and at the same time, try and work out this special crossword. And I say special, because I'm told that the first letter of each of the words in the crossword, make a new word. Supposedly, they spell out the name of the saint we're going to talk about next episode. So let's go. Clue number one. Four letters, one corner of a Monopoly board. So Saint Monica was born in northern Africa in what is modern-day Algeria in the year 332. This was many years and many emperors after St. Lawrence, but only just after Rome had become Christian, under Constantine. St. Monica was brought up a Christian, but was married to a pagan man called Patricius. Patricius had a bad temper, and did not share Monica's faith. Monica needed a lot of patience and prayer strength to deal with him. Together they had three children, Augustine, Navigius, and Perpetua. But despite Monica's hopes, 
Patricius didn't allow his children to be baptised. Clue number two. Five letters. Award for artistic and technical merit in the film industry. So Monica continued to pray for her husband, that he would change and live a new life. Eventually, on his deathbed, Patricius accepted the Christian faith and was baptised. The three children eventually became Christian, although Augustine was lazy and led a sinful life. So Monica sent Augustine, at the age of 17 years old, to Carthage to study. Clue number three is five letters, African river horse. And another clue is seven letters, not supporting or helping either side in a conflict. In Carthage, Augustine became a Manichaean. Manichaeism was a religion that saw the world as made of light and darkness. And when someone died, they were removed from the world of matter and returned to the world of light, which is where all life came from. Augustine came back home to his mother and told her all about his new beliefs. Monica was so upset and angry, she drove him out of the house. So Augustine travelled to Rome while Monica continued to pray for her son's conversion. So the next clue across is eight letters, face up to and deal with a problem. And for another one, it's seven letters, and the clue is a major road. After some time, Monica decided it was her mission to see it through with her son. She travelled to Rome to find him in Milan. She found him teaching in Milan, so she talked to the local bishops and preachers and tried to convince them to meet her son. After a few years, after hearing sermons from people like St. Ambrose, Augustine decided that Christianity was the one true religion and claimed himself to be converted. Okay, so four letters, capital city of Italy. And another one is five letters, to long for something. One day, Augustine was sitting in the village square, talking to his friend. He said, what are we doing? Unlearned people are taking heaven by force, while we, with all our knowledge, are so cowardly that we keep rolling around in the mud of our sins. Feeling so unworthy and bitter, Augustine went into a garden to pray. He prayed for guidance, and just then he heard a child singing the words, Take up and read. Four letters. Communicate silently. Thinking that God intended him to hear those words, Augustine picked up a book of the letters of St. Paul and read the first passage his eyes fell upon. It was just what Augustine needed, because in that passage, St. Paul says to put away all impurity and to live in imitation of Jesus. So Augustine was set on living a new life. Four years later, in the year 387, Monica, Augustine's mother, died, with Augustine at her bedside. Finally, she could rest in the comfort of knowing her son was living a good life in the name of Jesus. Augustine recorded the words she imparted upon him when she realized death was near. Son, nothing in this world now affords me delight. I do not know what there is now left for me to do, or why I am still here. All my hopes in this world and now fulfilled. On Holy Saturday of that year, Augustine was baptised. Four years later, he was made a priest. 
and five years on, made Bishop of Hippo. So the next clue down is to make a priest, and there's six letters. Another one is ten letters, a red fruit. St. Augustine became very devout and charitable, but never lost his love for the destitute and sinners. On the wall of his room, he had the following sentence written in large letters. Here we do not speak evil of anyone. St. Augustine wrote many books and sermons dealing with Catholic theology and philosophy. His writings often challenged the Roman view of life. The Romans claimed to have a meritocracy, a society where the people at the top were there supposedly because of their own virtues. While Augustine was the first theologian to use the phrase original sin, he proposed that all humans were crooked in some way, and that our sinful nature drives us to rule and to dominate rather than to love. Okay, so we got five letters, and the clue is to tutor. And then, oh gosh... The clue is a Latin book written by Augustine of Hippo to discuss the Trinity. And it's five words, two letters, three letters, seven letters, two letters, and three letters. St. Augustine of Hippo is the patron of brewers because of his conversion from a former life of loose living, which included parties, entertainment, and worldly ambitions. His feast day is on the 28th of August the day after the feast day of his mother, St. Monica, which is on the 27th. We can pray to St. Monica for patience and perseverance in prayer, and to St. Augustine to increase our love and understanding for God. And the final clue of this special crossword is seven letters, something hard to explain. Anyways, I'm going to go back to my crossword and tea. Of course, if you can, try answer those crossword clues to find out who our next saint will be. The first letters of each solution in that order should spell his or her name. Good luck, and until then, goodbye.